Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. One of the most profound moments I ever experienced uh, was uh, being on the floor, having a really animated uh, argument with uh, a Republican on the floor, so bad that uh, the speaker had to start pounding the gavel. And we walked out and sat on the balcony, uh, and uh, he, he looked at me, uh, his face was red and he was very angry and he said uh, have you seen the schedule this weekend and I said yeah they just released it we're going to be here voting this weekend and he, he just his face fell and he said this weekend is my daughter's graduation from high school I promised her I'd be there I'm going to miss it I'm sorry about what happened inside I was just in a really bad mood that's how members of Congress can communicate as human beings the problem is there's little incentive, very little incentive to do that these days because members' districts have been drawn so far to the left and right, they're in an echo chamber, and they don't want to communicate on the other side of the aisle. That's Steve Israel, who served in the House of Representatives for 16 years, ending in 2017. He retired, as he likes to say, unindicted and undefeated. I'm very grateful to Steve, who was one of the earliest supporters of the Center for Communicating Science. Steve, it's great to be talking with you again. I remember the night about 12 years ago when we met, and I'll never forget the story you told me that night. I don't know if you remember it. I was trying to get you to help us raise money from the government to start the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook. And I was telling you all the reasons I thought it was important for scientists to communicate better. And you said something like, you don't know half the problem. That's right. Yeah. And you told me about those meetings you had had between congressmen and scientists. Do you remember how that went? Oh, gosh, I remember it vividly. Uh, in fact, there are entire areas of my uh, brain that have been numbed ever since then. <laughs> 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 going to hearings and listening to scientists explain their position. Th this is, uh, I know you've been on this uh, issue, uh, Alan, for quite some time, and you really did introduce me to it. This is a very uh, serious gap uh, that exists between political practitioners, members of Congress and others, and the scientific community. I remember attending hearings on climate, for example, where a climate scientist would testify. And I would be sitting up on the dais, that beautiful mahogany dais, and listening to this five minutes of testimony. And at the end, I would lean to the member of Congress on my left or the member of Congress on my right, and we would all have uh, a similar 
uh, reaction, and that was always, what did he just say? Or what did she just say? <laughs> the scientists communicate in a certain way. They're data-driven, right? They're empirical. Uh, and politicians are not always data-driven and not only empirical, they're narrative. Uh, and so it's so vital, I, I, in my view, uh, that we, we reduce this communications gap between the science community and the political community. Yeah, the case is often when it gets to the point of addressing members of Congress about the issue, they're looking for sometimes billions of dollars for a really important project and start out by explaining why it's important in terms that fellow scientists in that very field would recognize as important. Right. They've spent their lives on that. It makes sense that they would think of it in those terms. But the the issue is almost always... How is the person thinking who's hearing this? Yeah, exactly. What, what, where are they coming from? What's their, what's their life been spent doing? What's important to them? Yeah. And that's a cardinal rule of all politics. One of my favorite mantras uh, in my time in Congress uh, and in the Democratic leadership in the House was this. You have to meet voters where they are. Right. You've got to anticipate what they're sensing, what they're feeling, what their anxieties are. Don't tell them what you think. Sense how they feel. And meet them there. And the scientific community, I think, can do a, a much better job of that. There were two exceptions to the rule in Congress, Alan. Uh, one was former Congressman Rush Holt from New Jersey, and the other is current Congressman Bill Foster uh, from Illinois. They understood exactly what scientists were trying to communicate in, in these interactions. And that's because both were physicists before they went to Congress. So they were trained to understand, and they, would, they were, became the interpreters for the rest of us. Well, now the problem has grown to, can they communicate with one another? Yeah. Can something be said that's heard across the aisle where the foundation of facts is regarded equally by both sides as the same thing? My question to you is, with, with your experience, you served 16 years in Congress. Can we communicate better across the big divide? Well, we can uh, if we want to. Uh, what I experienced at the end of my 16 years was fewer and fewer members of Congress wanted to. Uh, there are exceptions to the rule. There are places on Capitol Hill where you can have honest conversations. My absolute uh, sacred space uh, on the Hill was this little balcony, uh, Alan, right off the House floor. It's hidden in plain sight. If you've ever been to the Capitol and you look at the House wing, you see this balcony on the second floor. That balcony is actually restricted. It's a members-only place. The only way you get on that balcony is if you are a member of Congress. And it's uh, the width of the Capitol on one side. You can you know, beautiful view of the Washington Monument and the National Mall on the other. Magnificent view of the Library of Congress and the Supreme Court. And across are the three House office buildings. And uh, it has very cheap patio furniture. Uh, you know, these kind of vinyl uh, chase lounges, that kind of thing. And you could be, we could be beating each up uh, on the floor of the house, calling each other names, questioning each other's patriotism, vilifying one another. And then we would walk out to that balcony and sit and talk, not as Democrats and Republicans, but as human beings. Uh, I, I remember one of, one of the most profound moments I ever experienced uh, was uh, being on the floor, having a really animated uh, argument with uh, a Republican on the floor, so bad that uh, the speaker had to start pounding the gavel. And we mm. walked out and sat on the balcony, uh, and uh, he, he looked at me, uh, and his face was red, and he was very angry. And he said, uh, have you seen the schedule this weekend? And I said, yeah, they just released it. We're going to be here voting this weekend. 
And he, he just, his face fell and he said, this weekend is my daughter's graduation from high school. I promised her I'd be there. I'm going to miss it. I'm sorry about what happened inside. I was just in a really bad mood. That's mm. how members of Congress can communicate as human beings. Yeah. The problem is there's little incentive, very little incentive to do that these days because members' districts have been drawn so far to the left and right, they're in an echo chamber, and they don't want to communicate on the other side of the aisle. It seems that gerrymandering has sort of taken the incentive out of the willingness to go to, toward the center because to take advantage of gerrymandering, you've got to stay isolated in your yeah. tribe. Is that, is that right? It's exactly right. And, and since you are trying to bridge the gap between science and politics, let me give you some empirical data. Uh, when I was elected to Congress in 2000, there were about 150 centrist districts, uh, purple districts, not too red, not too blue. And so in those districts, compromise was valued by the electorate. Talking about crossing the aisle was a campaign stump speech. It was a good thing. Mm. Today, right now, uh, there are about 30 truly competitive districts. 18 uh, are held by Republicans in districts that voted for Joe Biden. Nine are held by Democrats that voted for Donald Trump. So we've gone from about 150 to 30 competitive districts. The incentive to compromise is contained within those 30 or so districts. Every other district has been drawn so far to the left and so far to the right by politicians um, that the member is in a political bubble. They begin their day talking to their constituents and hearing one view, and they end their day hearing the same view from their constituents, and they don't have exposure to dissenting views. And that's why Congress seems so dysfunctional at times. And we hear all these stories about the good old days in the past when they'd go out and have a beer together after yeah. a day of arguing. Is, is that, is that a, a real picture of what, what it was like? They would, they would socialize afterwards? And why don't they now? Well, the good news is there's more uh, of, uh, of that socialization than you would think. The media does present a rather distorted view of Washington. There's nothing interesting and nothing's going to drive ratings uh, in, in reportage about members of Congress getting along <laughs> or agreeing. You know, Fox <laughs> News, they don't want to hear Democrat and Republicans say, yeah, we're together on this. Neither does MSNBC, CNN, and the others. Conflict sells. It sells. Comity does not. And um, so they don't cover those moments where members of Congress do go out for a beer uh, or a cup of coffee. Uh, I found the most valuable experiences uh, in, in developing bipartisan relationships was travel, international travel. You know, these are vilified uh, as junkets. Uh, let me tell you, um, if I had a choice between sitting in my, uh, with my children uh, on Long Island or going to a battlefield in Afghanistan, I'm sticking with Long Island. But, you know, I took these trips to <laughs> Afghanistan and Iraq um, on these, these congressional delegations, not only because I wanted to understand what was happening from a, a, a real perspective, but because when you're sitting on a military aircraft for 14 hours with a Republican who you thought you despised, you learn there's nothing to despise. You, you just mm. be, you're forced to begin to commune with one another. You begin to understand each other's uh, principles and values. And so though that if international travel is important in cultivating relationships, 
And making a point of going to that balcony, also very important. The relationships that are possible to maintain seem really important. And we talk about relating a lot on this show. What do you think is necessary to develop a good relationship? Um, Well, in in the realm of politics, um, relationships depend on, it's an excellent question, relationships depend on certain variables. Number one, trust. You have to have trust in your interlocutor uh, to uh, not to throw you under a bus. Uh, If you're negotiating something that's going to be contentious, you have to trust that person uh, to work with you to get to a resolution, not to knife you in the back. That's number one. Number two, um, you've got to find some uh, that you hold some common values. And I'll give you a very specific uh, example, if I may. Uh, I worked with uh, a Republican, uh, Republican members of Congress uh, on the issue of infrastructure. Uh, they disagreed with me on many issues. I disagreed with them on many issues. But we did find common ground on the need to make investments in our districts. Uh, because if you are a conservative Republican representing a rural area, your constituents are complaining about lack of broadband. And if you are a member of Congress representing Long Island, your constituents are complaining about potholes on the Long Island Expressway. And so you have to find those shared values and agree to build a relationship uh, around that commonality. I heard you tell a story once of how you managed to make progress in cultivating cooperation with a group of 25 members from the Republican side and 25 Democrats in a Chinese yeah. restaurant with a kitchen timer. <laughs> now, what, yeah. was, what was the value of the Chinese restaurant and the kitchen timer? <laughs> well, first of all, the Chinese restaurant uh, was uh, inexpensive. <laughs> so no, members of Congress just, you know, the, the, the cheaper the meal, the more likely they are to show up. Uh, secondly, it was within three blocks of Capitol Hill. Uh, and so if a vote was called in the middle of dinner, uh, uh. And you, you know, members have 15 minutes to get to the floor and vote, uh, we could do it. But it was predicated on a fascinating experience I had. Uh, one day, uh, there were votes and I had to be uh, back in my district in New York, which meant I had to vote and get on the uh, shuttle uh, to LaGuardia Airport, which meant I had to be the first member out the door to make my flight. And uh, I cast my vote and I was rushing out and there was this congressman in front of me who was a little slow moving and uh, he was kind of grappling with that heavy bomb resistant door. Uh, And so I reached out and I pushed open the door and it cut the lower corner. This This is a bomb resistant door. So it's reinforced. The lower corner of the door put a gash through his shoes and he fell to his knees and he screamed. And I did what any good New Yorker would do. I just kept going because I, I, I couldn't be late. The beginning of a great relationship. Yeah, well, it's, that's exactly what happened. A week later, we were in the member's gym, which uh, I don't want any of your listeners to be uh, to make assumptions. The member's gym is like any other gym in America. We pay dues, right? It, it, there's a cost to it. It's not taxpayers subsidized. And this, guy, this congressman was next to me. He was on the elliptical, and I was on the bike, and he said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, I do not. He said, uh, you ripped my shoe. You made me bleed. You tried to cut in front of me last week. Uh, and uh, I said, well, that tells me one thing. You, you need more expensive shoes. Well, here's what we, we, so that began the relationship. And this is what we noticed. In the members' gym, Democrats and Republicans get along wonderfully. We compete respectfully. Basketball, handball, paddleball. 
But as soon as we get on the elevators and go three flights up to the floor of the house, you know, we sound like a fourth grade elementary school assembly that's run amok. So we decided to do an experiment. He invited 25 Republicans. I invited 25 Democrats. We went to a Chinese restaurant once a month. We'd pick an issue. Uh, let's say at the time, the Affordable Care Act. Kitchen timer, five minutes, yell your disagreements. 55 minutes, what can you agree on? And those are the best 55 minutes of my career in Congress, I will tell you, every month. Wow. And that was the kitchen timer, and everybody respected the ding. They uh, respected the ding. You know, the valuable lesson I learned from that was that Democrats and Republicans are going to disagree on 75% of the issues. That's fine. There's a reason I'm a Democrat. There's a reason this particular member of Congress that uh, I worked with, his name was Tim Johnson, Republican from Springfield, Illinois, the district that Abraham Lincoln once represented. There's a reason that he became a Republican. The problem with Washington, these dinners taught us, was not that Democrats and Republicans will disagree. It's that we're so busy beating each other up on 75% that we will never agree on, that we forget that there's 25% that we can agree on. If we would just focus on that 25%, the country would be much better off. When you were talking before about how the media thrives on divisiveness, it seems that they're monetizing a natural human tendency For instance, when we're driving on the highway and there's a a slowdown in the traffic because there's a crash on the side of the road, we slow down and look because there's possibly blood, there's damaged a damaged car, people standing holding their heads by the side of the road. But we don't slow down a bit if they're having a family picnic. (laughs) Right. But they've found a way to jack up the ability to make money out of that. And I guess they were led by one success after another. Yeah. So what's, if, if money is a barrier there, I wonder what, what do you suppose is going to change that? Because like most businesses, they're, they're interested in winning financially. Yeah. You know, I think this is the preeminent challenge that we have as a society. Uh, fear motivates. And as humans, as a species, we're driven by a survival instinct. Uh, and uh, we've been, some of us uh, looked at this. We spent two years studying how people reach political judgments. Uh, is it the uh, amygdala uh, that motivates people to reach a judgment based on fear and emotion? Uh, is it the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that uh, helps people reach uh, a, a judgment? That's where reasonability and rationalism uh, resides, and this is what we found. Uh, There was a professor at the University of Chicago named J. Eric Oliver who tested uh, this this issue. And he found that Democrats tend to be more motivated by by rationality. You know, that's why they want to see a 42-point plan. That's why, you know, Republicans, God bless them, they say uh, uh, it's lower taxes, right? Uh, We're going to lower taxes and we're going to build a wall. And people, emotion responds to that. And Democrats say, well, let me give you my 42-point plan on comprehensive immigration reform. And, uh, you know, 40 minutes later, we're still talking. We've got to go back to the days, and we used to be able to do this, back to the days where we were animated by both, by both the amygdala and by reasonableness. Uh, And that creates a much more, a healthier, emotionally healthier, uh, and uh, a, a much more... 
uh, informed uh, electorate. Right now, it's not that we're Democrats or Republicans, if you read uh, Oliver's book. It's that we're either rationalists or intuitionalists. And that's not healthy for a society. When we come back from our break, I talk with Steve Israel about his concern that mail to a politician from their constituents threatens to be greatly outnumbered by mail written by chatbots. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm... (laughs) I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with former Congressman Steve Israel. We'd been talking about how Democrats and Republicans differ in how they frame an issue before voting on it. You make me think of how the vote is actually made by a congressional member. I saw an article you wrote where the importance of mail on a particular issue is very high before the vote is taken, the people in the office gather the data. And now there's a dangerous entry into the world where chatbots are writing the letters. Yeah. So is the influence of the mail still as great as it was? Is, for instance, is email counted with the same yeah. weight as a hand-typed or handwritten letter? Uh, it's, it's a great question. So I, I would not speak for all members of Congress, but I believe that the that most members of Congress make judgments on how they're going to vote based on several metrics. One is constituent correspondence. Now, each member of Congress has their own way of filtering out constituent correspondence. Uh, my, on a very contentious vote, I would receive a memo from my legislative assistant explaining the vote, the pros, the cons, the impact in the district, but always 
there was a paragraph on how the mail was running in phone calls. Mm. And uh, the memo would say, uh, 60% of our mail on this uh, is for the bill, uh, 40% is against the bill. Uh, same for phone calls. Now, you have in the old days, you'd be able to factor out the inauthentic letters, the correspondence. How would you do that? Uh, for example... So a lot of these came in on petitions and postcards, uh, and half the time people didn't even know what they were signing. Uh, and so we disqualified, you know, uh, pre-printed, handwritten petitions. We disqualified what, what are called robocalls, where my office would get flooded, and other congressional offices are flooded with calls from people. Uh, and they're not even sure why they're calling. They just got a call telling them to hold on, to be patched through to your member of Congress so that you can tell them why you're opposed to H.R. 4272. And they'd be like, I'm against H.R. 4272. Also, can you tell me what H.R. 4272 is? <laughs> they, they would say. <laughs> so you try and factor that out. But the new threat, and this is a very serious uh, problem, I think, um, you're referring to the article that I, I did in the New Republic, is artificial intelligence generating uh, fake mail, trying to distort a member of Congress's understanding of his or her constituents. So I can now, using uh, AI, I can flood a member of Congress's office with tens of thousands of beautifully written, potent effective letters asking the member of Congress to vote for a bill. And the member of Congress uh, looks at that and says, wow, so many of my constituents want me to vote for this. I, I better do it. Well, these were written by robots. And they're all different. It's not like a pre-printed postcard. There are different arguments, different wording. So what's the defense against that? Um, there is no defense against it, in my view. Um, you know, uh, Powerful interests are going to use the, whatever tactics and tools uh, that they can. Um, the, the, this was tested by Cornell University, two professors at Cornell, uh, Professor Doug Kreiner and Professor Sarah Kreps. Uh, they sent 32,000 letters to 7,000 state legislators across the country on six separate issues. Half the letters were written by Cornell graduate students, real letters, flesh and blood, Half were written by um, uh, uh, AI. And what they learned was that legislators who received these, uh, these communications were just as likely to believe that an artificially written letter was real as they were a real letter. The way I think you asked about you know, how you defend it, uh, the, the, the only way you can defend it is um, to use technology to combat technology. Uh, and so there's uh, some people are saying, well, now uh, members of Congress and state legislators and other elected officials will have to have an artificial intelligence technology with algorithms to detect artific artificially written letters. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Unless they put a watermark yeah. on it. Or a watermark. Yeah. Yeah. I, but that's somebody being fair. At the moment, if I hear you correctly, at the moment, 30,000 letters written by real people are matched up against 30,000 letters written by one or two people who at the press of a button can turn out a whole new letter in, a, in five seconds. Yeah. So, so it's one, one or two people against 30,000. Yeah, exactly. It was a little more than one or two graduate students. Uh, I'm not sure, quite sure how many graduate students, but the end result was 32,000 communications 
uh, on on six different issues. What was it? What was there were some glitches, by the way, Alan, which I enjoyed. Uh, for example, uh, one legislator reported back that uh, the letter received by uh, an artificial intelligence program went something like this: um, "My name is Rebecca." And I am the father of, and I'm the single father of two daughters. <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> uh, yeah. Another one uh, was, and this is a way to, this is how you defend against it. A good elected official knows his or her district. Uh, one elected official did not respond to many of the artificially written communications, and when asked why, uh, his response was, "People in my district write like they talk, and these letters just didn't sound like my people." Yes. Yeah. So you know. You have a good view of things as a good elected official. So that raises the question, why did you run for Congress? And did you did you achieve what you hoped or come close? Uh, I ultimately made the decision to run uh, because I just wanted to be in the business of helping people. Like some, some people enter politics because they want to pass a specific bill. They want to end climate change, climate disruption. They want to cure poverty and disease. I just, being a, a Long Islander, I went to a community college. I came from a lower uh, middle-class family in Levittown, New York. I, I just wanted to do something where I could actually use my, my, the, my tools and talents to help people. And so I focused in my 16 years on constituent services um, and just solving people's problems, not, not drafting legislation, but just being the place that people could go to when they were having a problem with. It was a veteran who didn't get a medal uh, or uh, somebody who couldn't get a Medicare benefit. And yes, I did achieve it because to this day, the, the most beautiful thing I hear, I've been out for six years, to this day, the most beautiful thing I hear is when somebody come, approaches me on the street and says, you helped my mom, you helped my dad, you helped my daughter, you helped me. I didn't think government cared, but your office took care of it. And that wasn't just because of me, it was because of the team that I assembled, the congressional staff that I assembled, who knew at the end of every week they'd be judged, not by my voting record, but based on how many people they, they helped. That's great. It, it reminds me that the term the people is made up of individual people. Yes, so true, so true. So you served 16 years, and then you quit. What, what was your thinking? Why did you quit? I left. Uh, I did serve 16 years. I was in the House Democratic leadership. I left in rare form, unindicted and undefeated, which is a triumph. I decided to leave uh, for several reasons. Number one, uh, I just couldn't take the fundraising regimen anymore. It was really... Oppressive. Um, I was spending way too much of my time raising money and not enough time doing the things that I, I wanted to go to Washington to do. Um, that doesn't mean that every member of Congress faces the same challenges, but in my case, I, I did. And secondly, I just believe that uh, there comes a time when you should just try other things in life. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in, in reinvention and renewal, and 16 years in the House of Representatives was, was good enough for me. I decided it was time to give somebody else a chance and uh, I decided I wanted to write books, so I've done two novels. Uh, I love creativity, uh, and um, I'm exploring that creativity now. Do you have a new book you're working on now or that just came out? I do. I just turned it into my agent. I've done two political satires uh, that, that uh, thank goodness, got uh, great, uh, great critical 
uh, receptions. Uh, one was called The Global War on Morris, which is a parody of Washington uh, during the uh, Bush administration. It was dedicated to Dick Cheney uh, and to my dad, who didn't particularly like him. Uh, and uh, the other was Big Guns, which I think is particularly relevant now. It's a parody of the, the stranglehold that the gun lobby has over the United States Congress and the White House and even the courts. Uh, and, um, well, you having been so highly regarded for your artistic leadership, um, we'll, we'll appreciate that Rob Reiner actually uh, picked up the option for the global war on Morris. Huh. So we'll see what happens with that. And you write articles for the New Republic and the Hill. Yeah, and you have I a do. bookshop where you sell more books than <laughs> than your own books. You sell other people's books That's as well. Right. <laughs> and it's called Theodore's Bookshop. Am I right that it was yes, named sir. after Theodore Roosevelt? It's named after Theodore Roosevelt. It's located in Oyster Bay, Long Island, a mile and a half from Sagamore Hill, where Theodore Roosevelt wrote and read voraciously and lived and died. Uh, the corner drugstore that, uh, where the press would file their stories is around the block from us. I opened it two years ago, and it was always my lifelong passion uh, to own a bookstore, and, and now um, I'm, I'm pursuing it, and I love it. It's, it's so wonderful. Books even smell good. Yeah, it's so true. People come in. People come into our shop and they say, you know, I just like how this smells and it looks. There's something about there's something about holding a book, right? Yeah, there's, yeah. Don't you agree? There's something I about do. holding it in your hands and that the feel of the page against your 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 index fingers or your thumb that you cannot get from uh, electronic media. No, I agree. I agree. What is there about Theodore Roosevelt that you find so fascinating? Wow. Um, so I, I'm a Long Islander, and he was Long, Islander, Long Island's most famous uh, citizen. I've read as many books as I think any person can read about him. Uh, I find him to be one of the most complex and complicated characters in American history. Uh, he was belligerent. Uh, he was animated by racism. Um, but at the same time, he had this innate sense of justice and fairness. Uh, and this uh, extraordinary willpower. He was just undaunted. Uh, and when he saw an injustice, despite his own flaws, despite his own, uh, frankly, his own racism, when he saw an injustice, he was willing to take great risk to, uh, to correct it. And so uh, when he was told, do not invite Booker T. Washington to the White House, you cannot have a black man dining with the president in the White House, his view was, oh, of course you can, uh, you know, and he opened the White House to Booker T. Washington. Um, so I was always impressed with his willingness to accept great risk. And finally, from an initial position of weakness, he was, a, he was sickly as, as a young man, sickly as a boy, uh, in, in bad health, uh, and uh, dealt with those challenges. His mother, as you may know, his mother and his wife died within, in, uh, within one day. Uh, of each other, and he went out to the Badlands to kind of find himself and reinvent himself. And I, I'm just uh, inspired by stories like that, those comeback stories. You're a good storyteller yourself. That's great. Well, it's that's great, kind of Great you. to hear. Thank you. We're reaching the end of our time together, but we always end every show with seven quick questions. To okay. Which we learned a little bit more about the person we're talking <laughs> I'm a little nervous, but okay. no, they're, they're, not, they're not hard. They're mainly to do with yeah. relating and communicating. For instance, okay. number one, what do you wish you really understood? 
Um, I wish I understood the connection uh, between politics and emotion a little bit better. I'm reading everything I can on the, on the topic. And I'm also fascinated by the issue of transcendence. I just wrote, uh, read a beautiful book by Alan Lightman about the transcendent brain. And so what's the connection between how we think and those moments of transcendence, which sometimes we think are spiritual uh, experiences? I wish I knew more about that. Hmm. Okay, next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You can't. That's a great question. You can't. Uh, and we've tested this. When you do that, it's so tribal and so primitive, you will notice their, their uh, fists clench, their neck muscles bulge. So you've, you've got to find a way to engage them without impugning them. The, the, the least effective way of changing somebody's mind is to tell them that they're wrong. You've got to take them on a little journey. You've got to take them through a process and get them at the end to say, okay, maybe, maybe you have a point. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Would you be interested in running for Congress? <laughs> in 2000. When did you find out that was strange? 16 years later? Uh, yeah, about halfway through, uh, I, I realized that that was a strange question. I, but I still gave it the right answer. It was such an honor and privilege to serve. And I still get goosebumps when I think about it. Next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Well, there again, um, you know, force does not get you force uh, in that. So you can't force somebody to stop talking. Um, there are ways, by the way, members of Congress and other elected officials kind of are trained to do this. There are things you can do with your body language. Like what? So when somebody was, uh, I thought, really filibustering, not a senator, but a constituent or somebody else and was really compulsive, what I would often do is, is lightly touch their wrist or to put my hand on their shoulder uh, and, and try and disrupt the rhythm. Try and disrupt the verbal rhythm with a, a respectful physical connection. Um, now, being a Long Islander, that, that usually that would result in a punch in the nose, but that would work. <laughs> so I, I noticed a slight, a, just a slight physical c contact would kind of s create a pause, uh, and then you could go from there. Okay, let's These say are you're— great questions. Yeah, good, thank you. Let's say you're at a dinner table, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know— how do you start a, a genuine conversation? Oh, this is such a great question because when I traveled internationally, we were often at these state dinners and always seated next to people that we had never met and spouses would be seated elsewhere. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, I, I think it's just uh, the same technique anybody would use in life. You, the opening question is, tell me about yourself. And people love to tell you about themselves, don't they? Uh, so instead of talking about me, I would often say, Look, what are your interests? I should have tried these six or seven questions on them. I might have been just as effective. <laughs> okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? Oh, easy to answer. I teach a course at Cornell University uh, once a week. That hour and a half with my students gives me all the confidence in the world about where the country's going. I am, I am less than confident about our ability currently to solve these grave national problems, these threats to democracy. I am very confident in the next generation's ability to do it. And why? They are intolerant of intolerance. They are critical thinkers. They, would say, they will say to me, well, Congressman, you guys, you screwed it up. So just get out of the way and let us handle it. So as disquieting as things are, as pessimistic as they can be, as grim as the headlines are, 
I get recharged in my confidence by their confidence uh, on a weekly basis. Great. Last question. What book changed your life? Well, I should say The Global War on Morris and Big Guns to shamelessly promote <laughs> my <laughs> novels. But I will, I will say, uh, as a bookstore owner and a voracious reader, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, I read it when I was 12. Uh, I, I've reread it uh, consistently. Uh, I do a, a book club at my store called The Band Book Club, where we read banned books. And my selection this month is To Kill a Mockingbird. It changed my life by creating this identity with somebody like Atticus Finch, uh, who was willing to uh, who summoned great courage in a very simple and civil way to do the right thing and pass that on to his children. Uh, I think that's a life lesson for all of us. Steve, thank you for a very interesting and encouraging conversation. I really appreciate it. It's good, it's good to talk to you again after all these years. It is my honor, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Steve Israel served in the House of Representatives for 16 years. He left in 2017, having served as House Democrats' chief political strategist between 2011 and 2015 as chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. He's now director of the Nonpartisan Institute of Policy and Global Affairs at Cornell University. His two published novels are The Global War on Mars and Big Guns. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the author of the book Steve Israel just mentioned, physicist and novelist Alan Lightman. The book is The Transcendent Brain, and in it, Lightman grapples with how a scientist can explain experiences like this. It was after midnight, and uh, it was a very clear night, and the stars were out, and I decided to turn off the engine of the boat so it got very quiet. And I also turned off the running lights of the boat, so it got dark, uh, other than the, the gleaming stars. And I just laid out in the boat and, and looked up at the sky. And after a few moments, I felt like I was falling into infinity. Some part of my consciousness was going out to, to great distances uh, and mingling with the stars. I lost all track of my body and lost track of myself and just felt like I was merging with something much larger than myself. Alan Lightman, seeking an explanation for spirituality without invoking a spirit. 
next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.